scary girl. Hey, everyone. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Dead Time Stories. A weekly podcast yeah. where Sarah and I get together and talk about ghost stories, mysteries, supernatural, true crime, conspiracy, and Our all sorts of dog. other spooky shit. Dead pets sometimes. Like the last two episodes. <laughs> but it's all gravy. It's all good. We're all here to talk about things. Usually dead things. Usually dead things. Dead time stories. Dead time it's stories. It's in the title. It's what else right did there. you expect? So usually it's dead stuff, but sometimes it's just weird stuff. Yeah. Or yeah. like whatever we're thinking. Because it's our show. And not uh, yours. Yeah. Sorry about, about, it. Not time sorry about it. I love it. Well, welcome to the show. If you're new, welcome back, Virginia Thespian kids. Thank you if you are a child listening to our show, or if, if as you, you would call yourself. If you listened to last week's episode or whatever. Oh my God, thank you. Yeah, who knows? That was a shit show. And if you're a Patreon subscriber, man, extra thank the ever-loving shit out of you, my friend. Honestly, we really thank you. <sighs> we really do. So much. Yeah, man. Ghost farts. You know what we haven't done in a long time that we're what? parentheses supposed to do? Live stream. Oh, girl. We We've never. We've live stream forever. We were never because on Because it was always, you know, Colleen. <laughs> I know. Colleen, we love you. Colleen, you, I mean, talk about coming for that number one spot. Oh, for real. Like, she's there. She's fighting for it. She's like, get out of the way, Christina and Gilmarie. Seriously. I'm here. And my name's Colleen. That reminds me of, so my brother was a... Uh, used to drunk dial a lot in college. Oh, I'm not surprised. <laughs> and one time a friend of mine drunk dialed him and left the best drunk dial message that a person could leave, which he was like, hey, Phil, <laughs> I'm drunk. And I wanted to call you because you are a notorious drunk dialer. And I wanted to give you a taste of your own medicine. Yes. And now you've been served. Yes. With medicine. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. I always think about it because I'm just like, that's the best. That's, you've um, been that's incredible. I wanted to give you a taste medicine. of your own medicine. So you've been served with, with medicine. medicine. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. Oh, we should do, a, I could do a whole episode about great stories of people quitting. The same friend, um, we used to work at the Waffle House together. And <laughs> I'm going to tell this story real quick for Banter. Uh, and so that was my very first job was working at the Waffle House. And I was like, I hate this. I'm quitting. And I put in my two weeks notice. And then my second to last weekend, I called off. And the manager that was working was not my regular manager. He was from a different Waffle House. And he was like, well, if you don't come into this shift, then you don't have a job here. And I was like, well, wait, what? This is my second. I already put in my notice. So like next weekend would be my last week. So like, I don't really. And he hung sure. up on me and I was like, all right. All right. So then the next weekend, my manager called me and she was like, you're on the schedule. Like, where are you? I was like, well, I called off last weekend and Steve was like, if you don't come in, you don't work here. And I was like, all right. And she was like, well, Steve's not the manager at this Waffle House. And I was like, I already made other plans. And then she hung up on me, too. <laughs> um, and then JD quit shortly after I did. Uh, and he had worked at that Waffle House for two years. And he was taking somebody's order. And it was, like, super busy. And he was like, hey, guys, like, what can I help you with? What can I get you a drink? And the guy was like, isn't this place supposed to be fast? 
And JD went, it's supposed to be. And he took off his apron and left it on the table and walked out the door. Yes. And then the manager called and was like, you've worked here two years. You don't think you owe us like a better exit than that? No. And he was like, no, it's I sure Waffle don't. House. I sure don't. It's fucking Waffle House. It's Waffle House. What do you expect? That's the name of this episode. It's, it's fucking wa- Waffle House. Fucking what do you Waffle expect? House. What do you expect? What do I expect? I expect a Texas cheesesteak plate and I want my hash browns covered and topped. I want that fucking pecan waffle. That was one of my favorites. Man, I really want Waffle House now. They don't have it up here. I know. I know. That's because they have actual diners here. But like sometimes you, Not the you same. want Waffle House. Not the same. Man, a Texas cheesesteak plate. So that's a cheesesteak on Texas toast. Oh. <laughs> and that's what I would get at the at the Waffle House. And uh, my hash browns covered and topped is with cheese and chili. That's what that means. Yep. Yeah. We know that. I mean, I know that. Hey, Sarah. I grew up at a Waffle House. You grew up at a Waffle House? Yeah, literally, I was born and grew and raised in a Waffle House. And my Waffle House was right next door to the McDonald's, and that McDonald's got an upgrade the day it got an indoor playground. And down the street from the Dairy Queen where you pooped. Yep. <laughs> the Dairy Queen. <laughs> Give me some chicken tenders. And a fucking blue. Did they serve it upside down? <laughs> I, it wouldn't have stayed in the cup. Now, to be fair, oh <laughs> to be fair, I don't know. I've probably been to a Dairy Queen less than five times in my what? entire life. You need to fix that. But I don't right think now. I've ever been served a Blizzard upside down. But they're I don't supposed to do it every but I don't time. Know if I've ever ordered a Blizzard? They will. They'll. They'll hand it. They'll flip it upside down and they'll give it back I've to you. I've maybe been to Dairy Queen twice in my life. I okay. Think. Well, first off, we need to fix that because yeah. I'll be honest. I love Dairy Queen. Do you really? And not even just even because I'm shitting you have there. Your associations of pooping there. Well, because before then, my nanny would pick me and my brother up from school, and we would go to the Dairy Queen in town, and we would get a Blizzard I after school. I love that. And then I grew up and I moved away and I graduated college and my parents moved into an RV and then we had to shit at the Dairy Queen. <laughs> so it's getting a it's blizzard so and I was moving. It's still later. funny. I still think of you when I pass a Dairy Queen. Think of my whole family. Now I want to go. I want to go Dairy Queen. We should go to Dairy Queen. All right, this episode is over. We're going We're to Dairy going Queen right after this. Bye. All right. Hey Sarah. Hey Stephanie. Y'all, Y'all ready, ready to, to talk about, about some ghosts? <laughs> Tell them to wait. wait. Boo. That's a pooping ghost. Sarah, are you familiar with or have you heard of the Toynbee tiles? No. I hope I'm saying it right. Toynbee is T-O-Y-N-B-E-E. They are messages of unknown origin that are found embedded in the asphalt of streets in and about two major two dozen major cities in the United States, and four South American cities. What? Since the 1980s, several hundred tiles have been discovered. What? They're generally about the size of an American license plate, but sometimes considerably larger, and they contain some variation of the following inscription. Toynbee idea in movie 2001, Resurrect Dead on Planet Jupiter. What? Some of the more elaborate tiles also feature cryptic political statements or exhort readers to create and install similar tiles of their own. The material used for making the tiles was initially unknown, but evidence has emerged that they may be primarily made of layers of linoleum and asphalt crack-filling compound, 
Articles about the tiles began appearing in the 1990s, though references may have started to appear in the mid-80s. So I'm going to show you what they look like. Yeah, please do. Because, as you will learn over the next little bit, they originated here in Philadelphia. Sure, of course. So they look like this. Oh, I've seen pictures of those. And I, when I first saw them, I feel like I've seen them, but I didn't think anything of them because... You've seen them in Philly? They're, oh, I'm going to talk about where they are. Um, but I, I feel like I've seen them before. Like I didn't think anything of them because I always just thought if I, when I, like when I've seen it, I always thought it was just more stuff by Isaiah Zagar. Yes. The tile artist. Yes. So there was a famous Philadelphia artist. Um, I, I'm pretty sure he's still alive actually named Isaiah Zagar and he, uh, he's from Philadelphia. He is most known for the Philadelphia Magic Gardens, which you can look up, but he does all this tile artwork, like a lot of mosaic stuff. And it's all over the city. It's all over the city, and there's a whole place on South Street called the Philadelphia Magic Gardens that he, like, made this entire area like this, and now it's, like, on on display. You can go see it. You can have a wedding there, but only on weekdays. Okay, sure. Because they make way too much money on the, on the weekends, weekends to close for a wedding. That makes sense, I guess. I think that's really interesting. But anyway, you can see pieces by this same artist all around South, like the South Philly area, the South Street area. But they're also just kind of around Philly. Yeah. So I feel like I've seen them before and not thought anything of them because I thought they kind of just looked like his, his work. work. But the Toynbee tiles were first photographed in the late 1980s, and their first known reference in the media came in 1994 in the Baltimore Sun. A 1983 letter to the Philadelphia Inquirer referenced a Philadelphia-based campaign with themes similar to those mentioned in the tiles. Uh, Things like Resurrecting the Dead on Jupiter, Stanley Kubrick, and Arnold J. Toynbee, but did not refer to the tiles. Um, So... It's thought to, well, we're going to get to that, um, what they all mean. But in the United States, the tiles have officially been cited as far west as Kansas City, Missouri, as far north as Boston, Massachusetts, and as far south as Washington, D.C. Since 2002, very few new tiles considered to be work of the original artist have started to appear outside of the immediate Philadelphia area, Mm -hmm. although one notable sighting appeared in suburban Connecticut in 2006. And one appeared in Edison, New Jersey in 2007. Presumed to be copycat tiles have been spotted in Noblesville, Indiana, Buffalo, New York, and the West Coast, including San Francisco, Portland, and Roswell, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. Additional tiles were spotted in downtown Tulsa, Oklahoma in 2013. And Detroit, Michigan, um, but that was in uh, 97. Many older tiles considered to be work of the original artist have been eroded by traffic. But as of 2011, older tiles remain in Pittsburgh, in St. Louis, in Cincinnati and Cleveland, uh, and some in South America. So is it just a tile artist who decided to do the same imprint and then put it all over these different states? Or do they know, like, what it actually is? So there is somebody who made a documentary in 2011 who he thinks that he figured out who it was, but they haven't really been confirmed. Like, no one really knows for sure who did it, who did these. Who did it and what it means or what it's for or anything. Mm -hmm. That's so weird. 
So on June 19th, 2013, tiles resembling the Toynbee tiles appeared on a street in Topeka, Kansas. They were removed by the evening of the next day. What? Less than a month later, on July 17th, 2013, a tile resembling the Toynbee tiles appeared on a street in Salt Lake City, Utah. Newer tiles have been embedded on several major highways, including Interstate 476 in Delaware County and on Interstate 95. About six more were found on US-1 northbound starting in Drexel Hill in Delaware County in 2007 and 2008. The plates are much larger than the originals and have red italic writing on them. Do you think they're copycats? Huh. So there are some, some of them people think are copycats, but some of them some people think still are the original artist. Weird. In a documentary film about the tiles, Justin Dewar assumes that the Toynbee refers to the 20th century British historian Arnold J. Toynbee, and that Kubrick's 2001 is in reference to the 1968 film the 2001: movie, A Space, Space Odyssey, Odyssey, a film co-written and directed by filmmaker Stanley Kubrick about a man's mission about a manned mission to Jupiter. The Toynbee.net website speculates that Toynbee refers to Ray Bradbury's short story, The Toynbee Convector. The majority of tiles contain text similar to that that was mentioned above, although a second set is often found nearby. Several of these allude to mass conspiracies between the press, including newspaper magnate John S. Knight of Knight Rider, the U.S. government, the USSR, including tiles that seemingly made years that were made years after the Soviet Union's dissolution uh, and some that are like anti-Semitic. Sure, of course. A tile that used to be located in Santiago de Chile uh, mentions a street address in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. What? 2624 South 7th Street, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The current occupants of the house know nothing about the tiles and are annoyed by people who ask. (laughs) Though this is the former residence of a named recluse and alleged tile maker, as shown in the 2011 documentary film Resurrect the Dead, the Mystery of the Toynbee Tiles. What? Toynbee Tile enthusiasts believe that a native Philadelphian created the Toynbee Tiles because of the large number that appear in the city, their their apparent age, the variety of carving styles, the presence of the tile creator's creed, and the Philadelphia address on the Santiago tile. So one of the other theories, so we've talked about um, Toynbee, who was um, a British historian a long time ago, uh, and he used to write about um, just human nature and he and, and fascination with death, and he wrote about resurrection a little bit. Uh, the Toynbee Convector is a story by Ray Bradbury, who was a science fiction writer, and it alludes to Toynbee's idea that in order to survive, um, humankind must always be rushing to the future and trying to figure out the next thing to like keep us alive or mm-hmm. to bring us back. Mm-hmm. Uh, another theory is that it's alluding to Arthur C. Clarke's short story, Jupiter 5, which involves a spaceship called the Arnold Toynbee on a mission to Jupiter. And then here's one that's a little out there, but it makes me laugh because I hate David Mamet. I was going to say, does it have to do with owls or what? No. Uh, you you also hate David Mamet, right? Oh, yeah. I'm not yeah. a big fan. So David Mamet's 4 a.m., um, he believes that it's tied to this play that he wrote, that it's like an homage to him. 
So playwright David Mamet has spoken on his belief that the tiles are an homage to one of his plays. Oh, my God. And has described it as, quote, the weirdest thing that has ever happened. Sure. Okay. Make it all about yourself. In his 1983 work, 4 a.m., published in the collection Goldberg Street Short Plays and Monologues in 1985, a radio host based on Larry King impatiently listens to a caller who contends that the movie 2001, based on the writings of Arnold Toynbee, speaks to the plan to reconstitute life on Jupiter. The radio show host quickly points out the factual errors in the the call's assertion and the logical fallacies of his plan. Researchers for the 2011 documentary Resurrect Dead, the mystery of the Toynbee tiles, claim to have uncovered several pieces of evidence that predate Mammoth's play. Yeah, okay. Including a 1980 call by the tiler to Larry King's radio show. They cite a 1983 article in the Philadelphia Inquirer, which mentions a local man contacting talk shows and newspapers to spread the message about bringing the dead to life on Jupiter, as depicted in the film 2001. In 1983, a man identifying himself as a social worker named James Morosco contacted talk shows and newspapers with his theory of colonizing Jupiter with the dead inhabitants of Earth, claiming to have come across the idea while reading a book by historian Arnold Toynbee. In a conversation with the Philadelphia Inquirer, Morosco discussed how Toynbee's book contained a theory on bringing dead molecules back to life and that this was later depicted in the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. The caller had founded what the Inquirer called a Jupiter colonization organization known as the Minority Association. In 1996, the Kansas City Star editor Doug Wargle discovered a Toynbee tile at the corner of 13th and Grand in downtown Kansas City. Investigating the story seven years later, he found that the tile was still there, and he determined that the street had been resurfaced in 1996. Comparing the tile to those in other cities, a local police detective felt that clearly it was created by the same hand and concluded that despite referring to the movement, the creator was acting alone. Huh. In 2003, Wargle called the only James Morosco in the Philadelphia telephone book and was told that the man's wife told by the man's wife that her husband had died in March that year at age 88. When asked about the tiles, Morosco's widow said that her husband didn't know anything about it. Wargle doubted that this was the tile maker. Yeah. Action News spoke to the widow of a man named James Joseph Morosco and identified him as a Philadelphia carpenter who had died in 2003 at the age of 87. His wife did not recognize the tiles and said her husband had no interest in Jupiter. If Morosco had died at either age in 2003, he would have been in his 70s when most of the tiles were laid. In the 2011 documentary Resurrected Dead, Artist and Toynbee tile enthusiast Justin Dewar said that he considered the tiles to be work of a single person and attributed them to reclusive Philadelphia resident Severino Sevi Verna. Dewar believed Verna used the name James Morosco as an alias. Huh. The streets surrounding Verna's residence were littered with small proto-tiles that Dewar believed were tests. And ham radio enthusiasts reported Verna might have broadcast a message via shortwave radio about his theories. Based on comments from Verna's neighbors and him driving a car without a passenger seat. That's some Ted Bunny creepy shit. Durer suspected that Verna placed the tiles through a hole in the floor of his car. Wow. New tiles have been seen in Philadelphia since 2003. What? Between 2002 and 2007, many such tiles displayed a different font and styling than the older tiles and tended to leave out words that were found on the originals. 
Raise is often substituted for resurrect, so raise dead instead of resurrect dead. And prepositions are frequently omitted. Beginning in 2007, tiles were discovered in Philadelphia that are quite similar to the original tiles, leading some to believe that everything has been the work of the same person throughout the life of the tile phenomenon. What? The font and message are the same as the old ones, and the subtext is a return to some of the older ideas as well. The tiles were glued with a thicker layer of asphalt glue glue or sealant than the older ones. Um, So the theory is basically that the way that they're engraved in the pavement is that they're put down on a fresh, freshly paved pavement, or if they're on the sidewalk, freshly marked cement. Um, And then tar paper is put over them. And once they're driven over, over and over again, it embeds them into Mm -hmm. the pavement. And then the same with like, you know, foot traffic or whatever over the sidewalk. That's why those aren't as deeply embedded as the ones in the street, because the ones in the street have been embedded by vehicles Versus foot traffic. Huh. Toynbee uh, Toynbee tile enthusiast Justin Dewar claims to have once found and examined a newly installed tile. This new tile was wrapped in tar paper and placed on a busy street early in the morning. From this find and other evidence, Dewar believes that the pressure exerted by automobiles driving over the tile for weeks on end pushes the tile into the road surface. Eventually, the tar paper wears away, exposing the message. A website reported a tile in Pittsburgh that included deployment instructions, like how telling you how to do these yourself, which the reader transcribed as linoleum, linoleum, asphalt glue in several layers, and then placing tar paper over it so that the wheels won't mess it up. And apparently the heat of the sun on the tar paper will bake it into the street. The tile was located near the Pittsburgh Hilton and has since been paved over. Tiles that are located in the middle of busy streets and on and off highway ramps tend to wear away really quickly and also can become the victims of resurfacing. Smaller tiles and those located close to pedestrian crosswalks tend to be in better condition. Hundreds of tiles have been destroyed during the course of regular road maintenance. The city of Chicago has declared the tiles as vandalism and removes any tiles that it finds, considering it to be uh, no different than graffiti. A large tile complex, the tile maker's apparent rant against his enemies was destroyed when Chestnut Street in Philadelphia was repaved. One tile located on the corners of Talicuano and Santa Fe Streets in Buenos Aires, Argentina, since at least 1996, is damaged and unreadable. Wow. There's no public or private agency dedicated to conserving Toynbee tiles. Many tiles now only exist in photographs taken before their destruction. The tiles have enjoyed attention from American and European media outlets, including the New York Times, Chicago Sun-Times, Spiegel Online, and NPR. In 2011, there was a documentary made about it by Justin Dewar. The film was selected in the 2011 Sundance Film Festival in the U.S. documentary category. Um, It also won a directing award. As of October 2015, the Streets Department of Philadelphia recognized Toynbee tiles as street art and will save one or two Toynbee tiles only if there is a fast and affordable method for removing them. So Um, we're like the opposite of Chicago. (laughs) Well, we don't want to leave them on the street, but Philadelphia has been actually kind of known for working with street artists. They have a thing um, you know about, the Mural Art Project, Mm -hmm. where they've hired street artists to paint giant murals in the city. They're everywhere. So they're really, really into preserving street art. The issue is it's really hard for them to find, like it said, like a cheap 
like an affordable way to cut them out of the street. And the city is interested in saving them, like preserving them and like putting them on display somewhere, but not having them everywhere in the streets. Like they're not looking to cover them and destroy them, but they're trying, they would like to find a way to save a few of them before they're gone forever. Yeah. And then not worry about making an effort to preserve all of them. They can repave roads and stuff without worrying about getting rid of these tiles that they're, you know, deeming as art. Fair. Interesting. And no one knows what they really mean. No one knows for sure. So there is the documentary uh, where the guy, he, you know, he feels like he's figured it out who did it and like where they came from, but n- not the message. Like the the guy who he thinks did it is dead. Yeah. So there's no like asking him. So those are the Toynbee tiles, weird. which are weird enough already, but I love that they're from Philly. Yeah. But no one. Yeah. So like he thinks he knows who did it. But no one really knows why or what the message means or any of that. Huh. Or how many of them were actually him and how many of them are copycats. Weird. But he's thought to have done like hundreds and hundreds of them. Huh. Yeah. I'm just like, I I would love to know like what it actually meant, but I guess we'll never actually know. We'll never know. Weird. Philly. Look at you. I learned. You did. Only it's me been a long time. A year and I haven't done it in a long time, and you still remember it. Sarah, what are, what are you talking about this week? Um, So it's slightly Philly-oriented, and I will, again, apologize for not doing as much research as I could have. I'm basically just going to read off the Wikipedia. But I heard about this case when I was doing the Laurel Hill Cemetery uh, Halloween thing, which Dope. is... Uh, where you go by each certain crypt and then you'll have an actor performing a piece that's based off of someone who's actually buried in the cemetery. Well, one person who was performing was uh, telling the story of an actor, a Philadelphia actor named Walter Hubble. But Walter Hubble is also known for going and investigating this ghost poltergeist story okay and i heard about this in the piece that was done and i there were moments where i found it hilarious um and we'll get to those moments in a story but basically it was a um in nova scotia canada a family well we'll just start back at the beginning and it's called the great amherst mystery is what it's known as but it's basically a reported poltergeist activity in amherst nova scotia canada between 1878 and 1879 okay uh, it was the subject of an investigation by walter hubble a philadelphia actor with an interest in fight fi- psychic phenomena who kept what he claimed was a diary of events in the house and later expanded it into a popular book. So right. it is a book that's been published. And Walter Hubble is buried in Laurel Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. Get it, Hubble? So the Amherst mystery centered on Esther Cox, who lived in a small house with her married sister, Olive Teed, Olive's husband, and their two young children, as well as a brother and sister of Esther and Olive also lived in the house, as did Daniel, her husband's brother, John Teed. So you had a nice little house of the family. Name Teed for Teed, some reason. Right? Teed. Olive Teed. Olive Teed. What? Teed it almost right sounds like it. a verb. Yeah. Right. Um, she teeded a poltergeist. Let's see. So <laughs> Esther Cox. Apparently, the events began after August of 1878 when Esther, age 18, was subjected to an attempted sexual assault by a male friend. So he didn't actually. 
go through with succeeding, but he attempted to sexually assault her. And after that, it left her in great distress. And then this physical phenomena began, which this is not unheard of in poltergeist activity, that a girl is either in puberty or something traumatic has happened to her. And then all of a sudden you're hearing knocking in these walls. Objects are flying through the air. Who knows what it is? But for Esther's situation, it was the subjected attempt of uh, a sexual assault. So it began with knockings on the walls, knocking and banging on the walls and rustling in the night. And then Esther herself began to suffer seizures in which her body visibly swelled and she was feverish and then also chilled in turn. So she'd be super hot and then super cold and then super hot and then super cold. And then per usual, objects in the house started to fly around. Of course. Yeah, exactly. That's always what comes next. So the family called in a doctor during which the doctor claimed to see the bedclothing move, hear scratching noises, and the doctor claimed to have heard the words, Esther Cox, you are mine to kill, appearing on the wall by the head of Esther's bed. They would administer sedatives to Esther to calm her and help her sleep, but the objects would still fly, the knockings would still happen, even when Esther was, like, knocked out and sedated. They were still experiencing the phenomenon. They would attempt to communicate with the spirit, which would result in them asking questions and the spirit would respond with tapping on the walls. Uh, The phenomena continued for some months and it became known locally. And that's when it became super popular. Everyone came to hear what was going on. Clergymen would claim to hear the banging and the knocking. Even when Esther's like sitting in the room and you're staring at her, you would hear the like rapping somewhere else so you like at your chamber door door, but esther's like it ain't me you see my hands it's not me so around january of the next year 1879 esther moved in with another local family thinking maybe if i leave the house like it won't follow me sure right but it did and the manifestations continued um, even in the other family's home right It got to the point where some people were sympathetic to Esther and then other people believed that she was the one causing it. She's full of Of shit. She's totally lying. I claim that Esther was frequently just like bitch slap Betsy. Esther was slapped, pricked, and scratched by the ghost and the entity. And on one occasion, it claims that she was stabbed in the back with a clasp knife. So that ghost fucking just stabbed her right in the back. Um, at this point, right they thought it was just one entity, but then as months went on and after January of 1879, they began to realize that there were several distinct spirits that were associated with Esther. No. They claimed to be Bob Nickel, who was the original ghost. He was a shoemaker in life. He was OG. He was a shoemaker. The he was the ghost. original ghost. Others identified themselves as Peter Cox, a relative of Esther's, and Maggie Fisher. Uh, after a visit, those all sound like poor names, right? I'm just like, so she was just being like tormented by poor people who are bored, yeah. like poor bored ghosts who were like, let's slap this bitch around for a little bit, as if she ain't been through enough already. She been through some shit, whatever. So she left she, at the same time she was spending time with the uh, other family. Then she went back to her sister, the Teeds Cottage, in the summer of 1879. Back to the Teeds. And all the phenomena broke out again. Mm -hmm. And it was at this point when she went back to the original home that Walter Hubble caught word of the case. And he was like, you know what? I want to check this out. I'm going to go. 
He moved into their home to stay and investigate the phenomena. It says that Hubble spent some weeks with Esther and her family, and he reported having personally witnessed moving objects. He would also claim to see fires break out and items appear from nowhere. And he said that he saw the phenomena occur even when Esther herself was in full view and obviously unconnected with them. Yeah, like for real. She didn't do it. Give her a break. Now, what I thought was the most hilarious thing, and this made me laugh out loud when I was listening to the piece being told, was he went in and he saw all this phenomena occur. And he was like, you know what, girl, you know what we're going to do? We are going to take you on a speaking tour. You're going to tell everybody what you saw. You are going on your own personal TED Talk tour. They're like, you know, he's like, you know what? Tell her what you told me. Tell her what you told me. And he was like, Esther, we're going on tour. We're going to show everyone how you're making all of these things fly around. And you're going to tell everyone. But unfortunately, they took her on tour. And the only thing that was flying around were the vegetables being thrown by the people in the audience at (laughs) Esther when she wasn't. Get out. I'm not kidding. She was um, she was heckled multiple nights. A disturbance broke out. And finally, Hubble was like, OK, maybe we shouldn't be on this tour anymore and took her back home um, after. I love you. He's like, just go on tour and he's shit like, let's will fly go on around tour you elsewhere and they'll fly around sure, you and we'll not? show other people. We'll put you on your own. Yeah, fucking yeah, 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 yeah. Tour, we'll tour, tour. Your thing. It'll be your own show. You'll have your own spinoff. It'll be fine. Ooh, never mind. We should we should take you back home. So she came back home and she returned to Amherst once more and she was working for a man um, like trying to do labor and then his barn burned down. So, of course, he accused her of arson. Oh, of course. She was convicted. What? And sentenced to four months in prison. Oh, girl. Although she was released after only one. After she was released from prison, the phenomena seemed to die down until it was totally gone. And then she was subsequently throughout her life. She was married twice, had a son by both of the husbands, so a son with each. And then she moved to Brockton, Massachusetts with her second husband and died in 1912 at the age of 52. I like the idea that the ghosts hated prison. The ghosts were like, okay, never mind. We're done now. The ghosts were like, you know what? We went to prison. And after five minutes, I was like, let's go. Let's go. Yes. And they were like, we don't want to fuck with her anymore. We went on tour. We're fine. We did it. We're good. Um, So Walter Hubble wrote a book about his entire um, situation. And the whole time, let's see, what's it called? It's called The Great Amherst Mystery, A True Narrative of the Supernatural, published in 1888 by Walter Hubble. You know it's true because he used the word true in the title. He said a true narrative. Uh, And Walter Hubble is buried in Laurel Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. And he took Esther Cox on a speaking tour where she was supposed to make objects move, but the audience just threw tomatoes at her face. Uh, But the audience was moved to throw objects at her. Yep. There you go. Okay. And I know there's more details that I probably didn't dive into, but you know what? Fuck you. My dog's dead. So (laughs) I'm going to do my research. I I feel like I'm going to milk it. Girl, what else am I supposed to do? He's my baby. As long as he's in that cooler in the backyard, I'm going to milk it. So I have like a day. So I was like, so next episode. It'll be better. (laughs) We'll see. It's going to be really good when you get that skull and that Beauty and the Beast jar. Oh, my God. It's going to be so great. But that's another 10 months down the line. My favorite part is that she's like, I'll get the jar. Yeah. She's like, I got it. I know exactly what you have in mind. She's like, I got those. Got you. She's like, I'm swimming in Beauty and the Beast jars. I'm ready. Here. She's like, it's my job. I'm you a know, professional. If you, to, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. Exactly. Um, Our film day. Tell her what you told me. Tell her what you told me. Um, Is on YouTube. 
It is. Lizard of Oz is in the same venue that Day played at. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Painted Bride. Painted I know. Bride. I've done a show there. I show I've done it. a few things there. I, I, it's cute. When I got there, that was all I could think. I was like, it's oh my Day. God, this is where Day was. This is where we watched our movie with a room full of people. I know. And so a few years ago, we were a part of 48 Hour Film Festival together. We've done it a few times. We've done it a few times, but it was the one where you guys wrote it, Stephanie directed, I, me and Leah were the leads, and it was a I, lot of fun. I wrote it for Sarah and Leah. Um, I love it. Uh, I think about it because of all of our movies, it's the one that like didn't win anything. <laughs> But it was the movie that I was the most proud of, and I still am to this day, yeah. because I was I, I stepped was outside good. of my box, and I usually do funny, and I didn't do funny, and I still felt like I wrote something that was very true to myself, even though it wasn't funny. The so. audience reacted, and I think that's the that's, that's what, what we wanted. I remember just holding hands, like, and that happened, and we both <gasps> just like squeezed each other's hands because we got we exactly the reaction that we wanted yeah. which was a big gasp and the room got really quiet everyone and was, got real uncomfortable and me and Sarah were like it's working this is it they're all like wait what's happening I'm like jokes mm, on you yeah find it on YouTube there it's you called go. Day Day <laughs> probably on Casa Buena's yes YouTube Casa Buena Cultural Productions yep so yeah that's the Amherst mystery that's my story and I'm sticking to it I like that that's your catchphrase now too that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. You're going to mention the dead dog, and then you're going to say, that's my story, I'm sticking to it. That's my dog, and I'm sticking to him. That's your new thing. Yeah. That's my dog, and he's sticking to the insides of the freezer. No, he's not, because <laughs> no, he's, he's wrapped. That's he's my wrapped. dog, and he's sticking, because he's, he's frozen. Sticking in the same position. Yeah. Oh, I love Thanks. him. Rest in peace, Snoopy. <laughs> I love him. I love him. Well, uh, with that, you guys should subscribe to our podcast Please. and our Patreon. Please. So if you want to support the show, the best way you can do that is subscribing to our Patreon, which we have $1, $5, and $15 donation tiers. And then, of course, the ways you can support us without giving us money, which, of course, that's number one, Yes, are you can give us a five-star review on iTunes. You can write reviews for us anywhere where you listen to us. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, all the places where you listen to podcasts. We were on Podcoin, RIP, but they Rest don't exist peace, anymore. Rest in peace, Podcoin. And <laughs> if you listen to our earlier shows, we plug them pretty good. I know. We our, need sponsors. We sure do. But you can follow us on Instagram, Deadtime Stories with a Z, all one word. Email us, deadtimestories at gmail.com. We love, love, love hearing from you guys. Yes. And that's about it on my end. I'm in The Lizard of Oz, which is coming up, actually, with when this gets posted. Like two weeks. Um, I got my tickets. I was going to say, but I mean, is it two weeks from now or two weeks from when this comes out? It's like a week out. It's going to be running February 7th through the 9th and the 14th through the 16th at the Painted Bride. It is the Lizard of Oz in Philadelphia. It's going to be a bunch of queer shit. Yeah. And, you know, lots of fart jokes. Yeah. And, right up our alley. And lizard people. Like, it's totally up it our alley. It is dead time stories. It is. And, um, yeah, it's a parody of Wicked and The Wiz and The Wizard of Oz. So, yeah, come see it. Check it out. That's it. Thanks for listening. Give yeah. us your support. We're hoping to do big things this year. 
Yeah, we're about uh, 11 episodes out from the Van Zant house. We got to look into that. Oh, God. <laughs> Let's see if we make that happen. Subscribe to our Patreon. Yeah, help us out. I'm Stephanie. I'm Sarah. And this has been Dead Time Stories. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Lip. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Ferguson. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman. 